0: Welcome to New Books in World Music, devoted to discussions with scholars of world music and ethnomusicology. I'm your host, Garrett Field, and today I'm talking with Matt Rahim from the University of Minnesota about his new book, Musicking Bodies, Gesture and Voice in Hindustani Music. This book breaks new ground in scholarship, not only about North Indian classical music, but also about the role of the body and gesture in music. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks. Really happy to be here, Garrett. So could you start us off by telling us uh, about your background. What, what brought you to ethnomusicology and, and the study of Hindustani music? Uh, I grew up in a small town in
1: Massachusetts and had the good fortune of living next door to somebody who was a fairly earnest student of the sitar. And he asked me if I would bring my recording equipment over and record him one day. And uh, so sitting there with my headphones on, I was kind of forced to listen for, uh, you know, 30, 40 minutes as he very slowly elaborated a rag, a, a North Indian rag. And uh, and I was very impressed. I'd never listened carefully to Sithara before. Certainly had heard it as a kind of sound effect in movies and commercials and whatnot. But for a 16-year-old kid, you know, sitting there and sort of out of practical necessity, being forced to listen very closely to something for uh, 30 or 40 minutes was it was kind of a revelation for me and uh, so I I got really interested in Indian music and and my neighbor was very supportive and he gave me a bunch of his records and then when I went to college I ended up at Wesleyan which is as you know a a wonderful place for world music and I found a teacher there and uh, got you know sort of got my ears open to all different kinds of music including you know uh magical and motets and, uh, you know, the the grand Western art music tradition that I had never really had much exposure to. Mm. And uh, so after that, I got shipped off to India on a grant uh, right after college and spent a year there studying very intensely, uh, studying vocal music with Vikas Kashalkar. And after that, I was more or less hooked. I knew this was something I wanted to devote all of my practicing time to. And, uh, ended up going back just about yearly from, from then till now, uh, to continue my instruction and training. And, uh, it was through that, that I got interested in ethnomusicology, you know, through the, the sort of, uh, clashes between what you expect and what you see, you know, gradually what started out as a fairly nerdy interest in, you know, modal structure and, uh, and, uh, you know, learning to sing well, uh, it turned into, a uh, An interest in, you know, a scholarly interest in Indian music. And at that time, I was teaching high school in uh, Berkeley, California, for a living. And uh, I ended up applying to grad school in Berkeley because Bonnie Wade, who'd written, you know, this really huge, important book about the exact genre of music I was studying, was teaching right up the street. Mm -hmm. So it it was all kind of serendipitous and fell together very nicely. And, uh, and, and Berkeley, uh, was where I had my scholarly training.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Does that answer your question?
0: Yes, that's great. Um, and so um, so this book, Music and Bodies, that's, um, it's about the relationship between gesture and voice in, mm-hmm. in North Indian classical music. And so, so you, you get to Berkeley and you're studying with Bonnie Wade, the, the, the author of um, a lot of works on k- kyal, the, the genre mm-hmm. of Hindustani music that, um, that you are practicing and performing and developing a scholarly interest about. And so what inspired mm-hmm. you to study gesture in North Indian classical music?
1: Well, I I had a uh, wonderful teacher at Wesleyan um, named John Barlow, who was kind of a specialist in medieval music, and he was convinced that there was some deep connection between the earliest notations of Gregorian chant and uh, various movements of the hand and various movements of breath and and other sorts of more intangible movements. He, he had a, a fairly well elaborated and, uh, kind of esoteric theory of how all these things fit together. In, and, I mean, and in the book, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he, he's, uh, he's a remarkable guy. He, he's sort of a, uh, you know an, an occult theorist in the sense that he doesn't fit into any musicological discipline very neatly, hmm. but uh, you know, studying with him that, that was just sort of like an interesting, interesting thing for me, it was kind of intellectual. But then when I got to India and started sitting with teachers there, I started noticing you know, everybody moves their hands as they sing, uh, and not only that, but by attending to what my teacher's hands were doing and allowing my hands to move as I sang, I found I could learn much more easily. I had a much clearer grasp of what was going on melodically. The phrasing, the, the weight, you know, the vuzzin, they say, you know, landing on a note with particular weight, uh, building melodic shapes, all of these things kind of sprang to life in a way that they don't if you think that music is only sound. And so that started getting me thinking. Maybe there was something to this. uh, But you know, at least when I first was starting to learn, I I still wasn't really thinking I would ever go to school to study this or uh, you know make any sort of serious, disciplined. Inquiry into it, right? So, uh, and then when I got to Berkeley, I, I got sort of uh, varying degrees of support at, at first. You know, some people were super supportive and thought it was a, a wonderful idea to figure out what's going on with people's hands, and uh, and other people then and now thought it was it was well, a, you know, a crackpot idea. It was that it was crazy.
0: And, you, and I, I should say the, yeah. the book opens with a very um, a memorable uh, narrative about uh, how that kind of um, uh, opinions about gesture. Uh, and I thought it was a, a beautiful way of, of beginning, uh, beginning opening the book uh, like that, beginning with someone's opinion about uh, how gesture was uh, kind of peripheral to the overall experience of uh, Hindustani music.
1: Sure, yeah. Yeah, th- this was um, th- one of those kind of discouraging moments in fieldwork. I'm sure you've had them too, Garrett. Where, Definitely. Uh, where the, the people that you're hoping will tell you the most about what you're studying actually turn around and tell you you're looking at the wrong things. And um, it, it turned out that the, the terms, and w- you know, once I started paying attention to the terms in which people were, were making these claims, it started actually telling me a whole lot about my project. Because it, it turns out one of the very interesting things about gesture is the way that it's kind of systematically not talked about, you know, systematically occluded or cast shadows upon. And uh, especially in the course of the 20th century, the ways that the voice has been uh, constructed as a kind of ghostly, immaterial phantom of pure subjectivity floating above the body. This turns out to be a very interesting and important thing.
0: Yes, and... Uh, yeah. Yeah, so in in your first chapter um it just you you really led me into um something I wanted to ask you is you, you write about uh, the voice and the body and how they they came to be considered separate entities in Indian classical music. So can so can you talk a little bit about this? Sure. Yeah.
1: I mean this is um any history of gesture is bound to be very sketchy because the earliest films that we have of people singing are you know maybe the twenties and thirties and uh so you know it, 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 a history of gesture is not going to tell you something like how were people moving their hands in Akbar's court you know or you know or uh, how how were people moving their hands three hundred years ago, but there is a great deal you can learn about. What people seem to say and think about gesture uh, three or four hundred years ago, and uh, it's it's clear that people have been saying that gesture is terrible since uh, at least uh, the middle of the thirteenth century. In other words, people have been saying that singers should move as little as possible uh, since roughly that time. And and so, in, there's this major treatise of the mid thirteenth century called the Sangita Ratnakar, and in there. You find this list of bad things that singers do, and among them, uh, predictably enough, is moving your hands too much. Hmm. And that, when I say this is an influential treatise, I mean there were treatises in the coming centuries that would just borrow these this list and reproduce it exactly, just sort of boilerplate. Here are the good things a singer does. Here are the bad things a singer does. And uh, this was reproduced almost verbatim, actually, in a whole series of treatises after that. so I mean, it's it's nothing new that people think that that gesture, at least excessive gesture, could be a bad idea. But what is new in, in the 20th century is kind of this new separation, a very radical separation of singers and dancers as, as a matter of social organization, mm-hmm. and uh, also a a whole series of kind of intellectual currents that that articulated in a in a. Um, a kind of a spiritualization of the voice and a despiritualization of the body, um, and uh, th- there are a lot of factors here. And the, the first main chapter in the book gets into these, but things like the development of the science of voice production, for example, in the nineteenth century, this is something Kathy Bergeron has written beautifully about in her book Voice Lessons, and um, you know, treating the voice as something that's merely produced by the larynx and not by the rest of the body, you know, just sort of a a, a mechanical course of production that happens in this one tiny little organ. You know, there's this wonderful story about uh, Rabindranath Tagore's early tutoring uh, where his British tutor brings him a larynx, a human larynx wrapped in towels to one of his lessons. and says, here's a, the marvelous gift of the creator. You know, he's given us voices and here's what the voice looks like. And he opens it up and imagine little Rabindranath looking at this. And, uh, and and he says in his memoirs, I couldn't believe that something as, as big as the voice would be caught by something so small. I'd always thought that the whole man spoke. You know, However great this thing may be, isn't the whole man speaking even better? So you know, there's some ways in which these uh, scientific currents chafed against uh, already well-established notions of what the voice was and where it came from. Uh, but it, it seems within a few decades uh, you know the, the kind of science of the voice uh, uh, scientific linguistics that treats uh, words entirely separate from their uh, method of performance mm-hmm. um, methods of music uh, theoretic analysis that abstract voices from performances where you know you're you're left with a kind of abstraction of a rug that has nothing to do with any particularities of performance mm-hmm. Uh and, you know, the, the major music theoretic project of the 20th century, you know, Vishnu Narayan Bhat uh he went around and he recorded you know, hundreds of, or not actually recorded, but, you know, notated the performances of dozens and dozens of great masters and uh, more or less wrote them out of the story and just kind of abstracted from these, you know, what can we learn in general about how this Raga is sung or this Raga is sung. So uh, all of these uh, theoretical and scientific and humanistic uh, uh, intellectual occurrence, I think, all kind of came together in making gesture seem as though it's something kind of extraneous. The body, something kind of extraneous, and uh, certainly what what nationalists were concerned about and music reformers were concerned about was a kind of uh, purity of voice, a, a purity of tradition that that wasn't held back by the, uh, the the confusing particularities of individual bodies, individual styles, and certainly not of gesture. Hmm
0: yeah it's fascinating you you also um you mentioned also about the, the the phonograph and and the way that um in 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 connection also to all these other um currents how in the phonograph the voice is separated from the body and um, mm. um yeah it's it's the twentieth century there's um so many so many um changes and um so the in so this Okay, so in the first chapter, after you've um, set out and explored um, this history of moving and singing in India, um, we begin in the second chapter to look at specific musical examples. And um, you present the reader with, with very beautiful images of, of singers gesturing in particular ways. Um, mm-hmm. And you have um, the notation right underneath, which explores this, this relationship between music and gesture. And so the first thing I'd like to ask you is, um, and you talk about this a little bit, bit in your appendix um, about your video data, is, is can you tell us a little bit about the um, methodologies that you uh, have used for this research project? Sure, yeah.
1: I mean, most of it looked like me just going in there and setting up a video camera and uh, and then sitting with singers. And, and, you know, one important thing is the video camera is typically just trained on the singer that I'm working with at the time, which is already kind of a limitation, right? It, it already um, – this is already something that ethnomusicologists are not supposed to do, right? We're supposed right. to be thinking about these, these social interactions and kind of um, – looking beyond the great individuals and uh and th- that is you know in-, in some ways you do lose that by training the camera on one person but eventually you know as as the book progresses and as my project progressed i began to see individual bodies as sites for social webs of uh, of influence uh, webs of training that-, that stretch through time and space and you start to see individual bodies as um as more than just individuals right. in other words it- it's true that there's only two arms, two legs, one head in the picture, uh, but you you see this not as just like a uh, you know a radically. Um Autonomous being, but a being that owes its entire musicality, its all of its ways of voicing and being and moving, to years of training and, and with usually several teachers. You know, um, you know, hun- hundreds of concerts they'd attended, and uh, you know, all, all of these, uh, all of these subtle influences. And singers are perfectly aware of this and love to talk about their influences, love to talk about their relationships with their gurus. I mean, if you get me talking about my relationships with my gurus, I'll, I go on all day about it so this this is um something a little bit deceptive you know uh most of my video data is what appears to be a single body on the screen uh but when you start looking at these as uh, as sites of social processes uh you realize they're much more than
0: individuals that's fascinating, and, um, and you, that really becomes uh, clear, uh, especially in the chapters on the musicking body and the paramparic bodies. But before we go into um, that into detail, um, mm. I want to talk a little bit about, um, um, in, you, you talk about the contingent links, um, what you say is the contingent mm. links between vocalization and gesture. Mm. So can you speak um, a little bit about these contingent links between um, vocalization and gesture?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I'll I'll give you an example. Um, the, the first example in the book is a singer who's singing a, a series of descending phrases, and uh, you know the the da these sorts of phrases over and over. And as they sing these phrases, their, their hands are kind of tracing these descending arcs. You know, you can picture like, um, uh, sort of like rainbows or something or, or water spilling out of a glass. And, uh, You know, many people who were kind of casually looking at the relationship between voice and gesture in the early part of the 20th century without the benefit of lots of video data would uh, say something quite reasonable, like, well, his voice is going down and his hand is going down. So his hand is tracing the voice, you know, his hand is sort of following along or it's a it's a kind of metaphor for what the voice is doing. And, um, you know, there are cases like this. If you just look at, you know, a few seconds here or there, short clips, it it really does seem to work. You know, a, a link like that does seem to work out. Right. But as you start looking at more cases, you realize that you know maybe a singer will do that for five seconds or ten seconds, and then they'll switch to a new idea, and they'll no longer just be moving up and down as their voice moves up and down. Now, next, they're using some sort of uh, you know cylindrical coordinate system, and, and then you start thinking, okay, this is a different link. And then a few minutes later, they seem to be using left and right as a map for up and down, and then. And then you start noticing them gripping things and pulling things and stretching things, and you realize that the whatever links there might be here, only obtain for for uh, fairly limited stretches of time. You know, usually for the length of the development of one melodic idea. Mm. Um, later in the book, this gives way to a, a different view. It just starts becoming kind of unsustainable to think of the voice and the hands as being two separate things. But, uh, certainly in this chapter to kind of build the case that there's some connection and yet it's also contingent. Um, all of the analyses are just, as you said, you know, you have the, uh, uh the, the, as though they were different instruments, you know, a gestural transcription, and then right below it, a, uh, a vocal transcription.
0: Right, and then you, you finished uh, Chapter 2 saying that voice and gesture, there are parallel aspects of of melody. And um, you, you you talk about um, two ideas, melody as motion and melody as tone. So um, what, mm. do you, what do you mean by these distinctions?
1: Well, um these are two models that are fairly common sense even to, you know, even to non-musicians, uh, and they're certainly common sense to Indian musicians. So um, there's one time-honored way of analyzing melody uh, where you think of a melodic process as being a sequence of items you know, like beads on a string. Mm. Uh, so, da, you can think of that as sadha. two notes, right? Two items. Uh, or four notes. Ah. But on the other hand, you can also think of that as motion. You can think of that as a kind of uh, curvaceous swooping phrase where you end up back where you started you know like those uh, those birds i think they're called house finches that uh, start out on a telephone wire wire fly down very quickly and then return right where they were a moment ago mm. so uh, both of these are fairly common sense and we talk about melodies ascending, uh, we, we talk about uh, melodies kind of swimming around aimlessly, returning uh, to where they were before, exploring new territory, this is a, a perfectly reasonable frame to speak about melody in and the point I'm trying to make in, in that chapter is that it seems at first as though notes are kind of like a hard-nosed objective account of what's happening Right. Uh, whereas, you know, motion is kind of fanciful or poetic. Well, actually, they're, they're both fairly fanciful. They're both fairly poetic. And those are both fairly verifiable ways of describing what's going on in very useful ways. So there are some situations where you really do want your student to understand a sequence of stopping points. And when you do, you're going to give them a sequence of notes. And there are other occasions when the student might be getting the notes right, but they're not getting the shape of a phrase right. They're not mm. getting the weight, the, the the correct flow. Like, the, you know, it, it sounds like they're stopping someplace too long, whereas they should just be touching and pushing off or something. And in those situations, you really want to be talking about motion. Now, uh, of course, moving your hands is a very apt way of getting across these ideas about melodic motion. Mm. And... Uh, and the, the fact that voice, that the voice and the hand are so tightly coordinated, you know, it's not as though the hand is following after the voice, uh, the, the two are happening in precisely co-timed ways, this suggests that a, a lot of what's going on as you're singing, and especially when you're improvising, uh, is a process of motion, thinking in motion. And, and singers say this all the time. They say, "Oh, well, if, if I'm singing something really elaborate, or if I'm singing, uh, you know, when I'm in the course of improvising something, I'm not thinking. Note by note by note. I'm not just right. like thinking, okay, first Sa, then re, and then I'm going to go ma, and then ga, and then pa. It's uh, rather the whole thing is kind of contained in, in a uh, in a, a continuous swooping kind of goal-oriented uh, action and uh so for, for all of those reasons, I think it's important to keep both of those models of melody in mind and once you keep them both in mind, it doesn't seem so strange at all that you would move your hands while you sing
0: and that's what's uh, nice about the book is that it it's it has um its theory is really rooted in practice and um and I think that that um that's it it offers us uh, a new new perspective and um so the, the third chapter um, of your book it's about ragas as spaces, um, mm. and I think it's amazing how you you, you put that into words. Um, I I have studied South Indian classical music and I and I have experienced this. Um, and so so how is seeing ragas as space different from how ragas are normally conceptualized? Well, there's
1: you know most of the music theory about Indian music uh, is about raga. And most of that music theory proceeds in terms of note sequences. So to go back to those two models before, usually when people talk about rag, they're talking about the correct grammatical sequences of notes that uh, make one rag distinct from another. Mm. So particularly in Hindustani music, where you have sometimes 10, 12, 15 rags that have the same scale, The way that people uh, typically resort to differentiating between them is by talking about appropriate and inappropriate note sequences. This is very easy to write down in a book. It's very easy to think of. It's uh, very easy to transcribe. It seems very precise. Uh, And yet it also misses something. And every musician will acknowledge that that this way of thinking of rags as grammar misses something quite crucial Mm. about the knowledge that musicians have about rags. Certainly the way that you learn a rag does not proceed from grammatical rules to uh, melodic utterances any more than learning your native language proceeds from learning a set of grammatical rules to a set of grammatical utterances.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because those things like you... On the surface, it looks like those things would come first because when we kind of relearn really, mm. them, we study them first. But really, it's 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 like you say, like it's it's the opposite. Mm. Yeah,
1: and there's uh, and this is not in any way to to demean grammatical approaches to rug. I think it's fascinating as music theory. You know, it's it's amazing how much there is to say about these grammatical differences. And yet, when you learn a rug from a teacher. Over a good deal of time, uh, with the end in mind that you're going to be improvising freely, uh, in, in this frog and convincingly and conveying the feeling of this frog, uh, you almost invariably fall into a way of speaking that has to do with movement in a space, uh, exploring what are called jaga, or, um, you know, the uh, the uh, what's literally the places or the spaces within a rag, um, talking about modes of ascent, paths, uh, leaping over notes, resting on a place, uh, putting yourself down on a place. Mm. There's a rich set of, of, uh, of music-theoretic terms that are kind of informal, that speak very naturally as though a rag is the space that you learn to move in. So if we're thinking as though a, mu- a melody is made of discrete notes, then we're li- liable to speak about grammar. If we're thinking that melody is motion, then we're liable to speak about raga as being a space for that motion. And the differences between rags as being not, not so much you know do's and don'ts, but rather kind of the affordances for motion that different spaces provide.
0: Right. So one one example that you focus on is what you call the Ramkali shift. So, so mm-hmm. what, so, um, so so different gestures accompanied um, this phrase and similar phrases in the rag Bairab. Is, is that correct or how did that, mm-hmm. how does that sound? That Ramkali shift. Well, um,
1: so Ramkali is very similar to another rag called Bhairav, and music theorists disagree about what precisely the relationship is. But one way of thinking about the difference is that Ramkali behaves like Bhairav just about all the time, except for the introduction of these couple other accidental notes. So when you're in Bhairav, you know sa ga sa so it's like uh you know it has a flat second and a flat sixth mm. in Ramkali, in addition to having this space to move in there's this other special kind of subspace centered around pa where you you bring the ma I'm sorry the fifth scale degree where you bring the fourth scale degree a little bit higher. Pa, ma, pa, dani, da, pa. And then you go back to your other patterns of motion. And then here's the Ramkali specialty. So, um, the, the interesting thing about the, uh, the analysis I gave in the book, and not everybody does this, but in this one lovely performance by Gita Devi. she's, every time she goes into this Ramkali shift, this special melodic subspace her hands also are exploring in a separate subspace, Mm. so uh, ordinarily she's kind of doing translational motion you know, back and forth, she's got a wide uh, kind of rectangular space she's moving in, but for the Ramkali shift, this kind of uh, curving loop back around the fifth scale degree she starts moving her hands in a kind of small looping spherical Motion in front of her abdomen, uh, a, a much smaller space, and using two hands, whereas for the rest of it she uses one. Uh, she, she, it's a relatively tight and tense and kind of uh, curvaceous space, whereas the other space is more linear and um, in, involving larger swoops. So uh, the point here is simply that even within these spaces, there are sometimes very discrete and salient subspaces, both gesturally and vocally.
0: Yeah, it's it's a, it's, it's a, a really a, a great example. I think it epitomizes the idea of um, raga as space. And um, in in chapter four, you you devote um, some thought to a method of improvisation called upaj, where the singer develops short phrases. Um, by appending melodic material before and after.
1: So, first of all, I should say upaj can mean a lot of things to different people. It, it has a kind of literal agricultural meaning, you know, just like a sprouting or a coming up. Uh, it can also mean something kind of like occurring to you. And, uh, and when musicians use it, sometimes they just use it to refer to uh, improvisation you know, what Carnatic musicians might say, like, uh, "manodharma," right? Yeah. Like, um, you know, as opposed to a composition. Um, but it also has a slightly more technical meaning, especially in certain lineages. Uh, upaj means, just as you said, a, a sort of development of a phrase, uh, by, you know, building on to things before it and after it, expanding it um, so that what starts as kind of like a seed phrase then grows into something. And, you know, th- this might be a, a totally false etymology, but um, I I always remember that as being kind of linked to the sense of Upaj as a literal sprouting. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the relevance it has for thinking about uh, moving in time, and, and here, as you can probably tell the chap- in this, by this chapter, we're already starting to move apart from uh, thinking about gesture and voice as two different yes. like, connected things, and instead starting to think about what it's like to sing, right? Yeah. So, so here we can think about each of these phrases that we're developing as being kind of like an object that we're building right it's it's uh and the in the example in the book um we're seeing these these gestural kind of uh putting aside of each of these in place as though we're building like a, a sequence of these things like bricks almost mm. and um so th- this is you know again it's not that everybody does this and and the uh, the examples of the book are not meant to be a kind of like uh decoding uh, decoder ring right sure, for, sure. Uh, <laughs> for for going yeah. from oh, if he's moving his hands like that, he must be doing this you no know, rather i I want to say that there are um there are some definite patterns in how singer's report it feels to move uh in singing, both vocally and gesturally, and there are some ways that this is quite apparent from the way that uh, that people are moving as they 're singing, so putting down, coming together, uh, putting aside these things tend to occur at the end of fairly um, fairly important phrase endings, you know, mm. where you've sort of, you've, you've made a point and now you're done with it. Um, similarly at the, at the end of, uh, metric cycles where you've kind of made your point and often you'll see something like, uh, you know, tying a knot or, or putting down or, or, or placing aside or something like that.
0: That's amazing. So, um, Okay, in, the, in Chapter 5, you, you introduce the, the concept of musicking body. And you, you talk about, you have sections devoted to things like pulling um, and posture mm-hmm. and grip and mm-hmm. release. So mm-hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Like, How do Hindustani musicians use these techniques in, in the course of improvisation?
1: Sure, yeah. So um, it's a verbal form of musicking, which in this case, it mostly just means singing. Uh, and so there's nothing terribly fancy about this word except that it it puts the verbness of music uh, over its sort of objectness and i I think when we think about music as something you do uh, rather than a a thing out there right Right. oh let's let's put some music in the cd player let's get some music oh what what music do you have um when we think of it as a verb uh, then a, a lot of the things I'm trying to bring up in this book about what singers do in the course of performance start making a lot more sense. Yeah. And the musicing body is simply a way of getting at a distinction between what it's like when you're in the moment of making music. And, and here, you know, you can think about what it's like when you pick up your instrument, you have it in your hands and you're, you've just started moving to play your first note, mm. or you, or you sit down, you've just taken your breath to sing uh, your first melodic utterance, and something changes right your postures change you're sitting in a way you wouldn't sit otherwise uh, you it's certainly for me my teachers come to mind um, i uh, my my breath changes my voice changes um, you, in a sense you become kind of a different person
0: mm-hmm.
1: And so this comes to replace the view of, you know, in the earlier chapters where you, for analytic reasons, were making voice and gesture seem like kind of separate things and, and we're shining a bright light on, on gesture as a, as, a, as a theme here. By this point, the, the, everything that happens to you when you're about to sing, this all becomes one thing. Right. It's it's not like you're you're singing a few notes and then you're also flapping your hand around and you just happen to be doing those things at the same time. Right. Like singing an ascending phrase and, and having your hand kind of uh, curvaceously move up in the air, this is one thing that you're doing with your lungs, with your you know, the cat's cradle of muscles in your larynx. With your tongue, with your jaw, with your shoulders, with your with your hand. It's not like thirty things that you're painstakingly coordinating. This is a single action that you're engaged in. And the body engaged in this action in this way I'm calling the musicing body because it, it takes on certain uh, kinds of characteristics and affinities that it doesn't have when you're just kind of sitting back and, you know, drinking tea or playing cricket or riding your bike or something like that.
0: Right. And then, um, in the final chapter, we learn about, um, what you would call paramparic, paramparic bodies. And, um, mm. what, so, I, I think we, from what you said in the beginning about how uh, I was interesting, I never, I never had thought about, the way that studying an individual could um, bring criticism about, oh, well, you're only focusing on the individual and not, you know, mm. it's kind of this, that, like, the individual as the um, the star kind of individual-only approach, but, but then, you, but you say that the this paramp- thinking about it from from the standpoint mm. of paramparic bodies, it really it's through the individual you see the the social, um, the social fabric or the, the socialness about um, uh, yeah. about the culture. So, so what inspires you about this idea of the paramparic bodies?
1: I started thinking about uh, finding a way to to talk about how it is that people are able to see teachers and hear teachers in in other people's voices so this became apparent to me pretty soon after getting to india when um when i started studying with vikas kashalkar and people could tell that i had been studying with vikas kashalkar from the way that i moved and the way that i sang and they would quite explicitly say it oh oh you're you know you're moving your hands like him uh when i Returned to the U.S. after my first trip there, and I, I gave a concert. And somebody came up to me afterwards, who'd seen me sing before, and she said, "The way you sing has changed. You're you're starting to move like this." And from the way she was moving, impersonating me, I could even see my my teacher's uh, habits in that. I, I could sort of see my teacher in that. So. Uh, I, I wanted to find some way to account for this, that whatever the musicing body is, it's not some, uh, you know, autonomous being fully, uh, you know, choosing every single thing it's doing sure. every, you know, every vocal utterance, every, uh, movement of the hand, um, all of these things are sort of uh, built out of a a repertoire that's available to you. It's not as though you're totally free and flapping around. Uh, You learn from usually, you know, one, two, three, sometimes four. Some people have as many as eight teachers. Uh, But in any case, uh, you're surrounded by all these different, Ways of musically being, Uh, all of these different musicking bodies that have their own traits, uh, their own affinities, and as I eventually come to stress towards the end of the book, their own patterns of virtue. You know, this becomes super important when people talk about what makes a great singer great. When people talk about what makes a great voice great, they typically are not just saying, "Oh." you know, it's because she has such a pretty voice. Or, oh, it's because I really liked how she sang uh, Gamma Danisa Ni. That was really great. That's what I love about her voice. Typically, what you hear is something like, Amir Khan is so patient. You know, he sings with this kind of... uh, expansive patience or, um, or Fayaz Khan like that's, he has such a dignified voice no one sings like that anymore with that kind of dignity and, and weight and confidence um, so you, you hear uh, all the time people are reading uh, ethical dispositions into musicking bodies and um, so by the end of the book this is kind of where I wanted to take things because in a sense this is what attracted me to Hindustani music in the first place was was, uh, you know, when I heard voices that I was attracted to, I was attracted to something in there that made me think there's some way about this musical way of being in the world that I'm attracted to. You know, there was, uh, I remember hearing and, and hearing this kind of like devotion and commitment. And I remember thinking, I want that kind of devotion and commitment in my voice. I want to be that kind of person, you know. Mm. So, uh And and then as you go on, and depending on who you study with and and the, the ways in which they teach... Um, you, you may find yourself uh, really changing into a very different kind of person in the course of a musical training not so much that you know you acquire uh, trustworthiness in your financial exchanges or something like that although you know that may happen too and there's legends about that but the the kind of uh, the, the kind of virtue that's embedded in Paramparak bodies that I'm interested in uh, may not stretch any further than the the the, you know, the, the moment when you're singing. It may not stretch anywhere beyond your musicking body. It may not stretch to your um, you know, your, your drinking tea and chatting body. Um, but it, nonetheless, it's something that's so legible and so important for so many singers and so many uh, connoisseurs of music.
0: And, and so, you, so the, it, this is connecting to this, this, your, your final, um, some of the questions you raised at the end about the connections between ethics, um, gesture, and voice so um I, when you talk about ethics I think you're, you're you're writing about the the ethical implications of bodily actions Mhm sure Can you tell us a little bit about that
1: Sure, yeah. So, I mean, this much is is nothing terribly new. I mean, um, so, you know, if you read uh, Aristotle's Ethics or, you know, the Nasirian Ethics, you find this great emphasis on habit formation. You know, where do virtues come from? They come from carefully building habit over time. Ah. And uh, so, you know, there's a very old tradition of thinking about ethics, both in the Islamic world and in Europe, where um, ethics is, is principally a matter of, of doing the right thing so many times that it becomes second nature. This was stressed a little bit less, I think, by Enlightenment philosophers of ethics, particularly Kant, who focused instead on the processes of deciding what the right or wrong course of action is. Um, but in recent years, uh, anthropologists have kind of revived this as a key sense of what virtue is. Virtue is something you're doing. And if you're doing it, you're doing it physically when you're, when you're making a decision to do something, um, or when you're doing something out of good, well-established habit, uh, you're doing it, um, because it's something that's been physically trained into you. So there's actually a fairly well established theoretical language for this much. You know, when you look at things from this point of view, um, there's, there's really no, no great stretch in seeing, for example, or hearing an open voice uh, you know, with an open hand and a, you know, a, a, a tongue that's pulled down out of the way and a jaw that's wide open as hearing this as the embodiment of a particular kind of honesty. And in fact, if you listen closely, and if you perform this enough, it begins to be honesty itself, in a sense. Like this is uh, when people speak about kula but uh, about open voice, uh, in from the point of view of virtue. It's um, you know don't don't hide your voice. You know uh, don't don't try to conceal the defects of your voice. You know let let your let your voice be open and and plain and straightforward and sincere. Um, The the difference between the sort of like floating abstract metaphysical virtues and the very concrete kind of fleshy things that you do every day when you're sitting down to practice and sing uh, start to look like they might be of the same substance. Uh, It starts to seem as though uh, sitting down and making music in a particular way, sitting down and and singing in a particular way, moving and doing all the things physically that you need to do in order to sing, that starts to appear as a manifestation of virtue. Mm. And I think this is in large part why people become uh really really absorbed with Hindustani music, and I think this it also provides uh, an easy kind of segue or an easy sort of bridge into speaking about some of the spiritual concerns that people come to have with Hindustani music. And it, again, it's, it's not just Hindustani music, you know, this is people, people hear virtue and John Coltrane's playing, you know, people hear virtue, even in, you know, the, the sort of uh, musical gestures prescribed by composers. Uh, there's, there's ways in which you, you come to feel like you, uh, you, you know, what what Gesualdo was trying to do with those vocal gestures, when you sing one of his madrigals, you know, uh, the, Mm-hmm. These, and certainly, if, if you read African Rhythm and African Sensibility, um, John Miller Turnoff's book, this is shot through with with all kinds of ethical readings of what it means to be an African musician. Uh, it means being a certain kind of person. It doesn't mean playing a certain set of notes. So, um, so again, this is for me one of the most compelling. Ideas in the book, and it's driving my next research project, which is about uh, ways of cultivating vocal virtue, um, where I'm I'm going to, as as far as possible, be trying to figure out some of the the differences between traditions of voice production that have kind of. Uh, uh, virtuous implications so you know it, it's, it's a very exciting thing for me but it's also not a terribly radical thing uh, this is a, a well established tradition in, in philosophy and ethnography
0: well, Matt, it's been terrific talking with you about your book, Music King Bodies, Gesture and Voice in Hindustani Music. And um, you, you answered my, my last question. I was going to say, what um, now that the book is out, what is next for you? Uh, oh, yeah. And <laughs> your, your project sounds uh, very exciting. Um, and I would like to thank our listeners for joining us today. And I would like to thank Matt Rahim for talking to us about his fascinating book, Music King Bodies, Gesture and Voice in Hindustani Music. Um, and- thank you, Garrett. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Matt. And uh, you've been listening to New Books and World Music. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time.